Revisiting a little bit of what we covered in Peter's first letter, we know that it was written around 64 uh, AD, that Peter lived until 67 AD. At the writing of his first letter, uh, the emperor of Rome was Nero at the time, and Nero had begun uh, his persecution uh, in horrific ways to the Christians. Someone, uh, uh, a historian said that uh, it was possible that Nero started the great fire of Rome and that in order to deflect blame uh, from himself, he, he blamed Christians. And so the persecution began. <clears throat> what takes place in this second letter, though, and, and in his first letter, he did write with a specific purpose. What takes place in this second letter, though, is equally interesting, as we'll get into in just a moment, and really unpacks for us uh, why the tone and the emphasis of this letter is different than his first letter. I draw your attention to uh, verse 1 and the title, where we see him ascribing to himself his name, Simon Peter. We compare that to the first letter. He called himself Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here, he defines himself as Simon Peter, uh, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Where in his first letter, there was a challenge uh, by some uh, because his writing didn't, his vocabulary was uh, more eloquent than they assumed Peter to be. His theology was oftentimes reflective of Paul, and there was a question in the first letter of whether or not the persecutions could have been happening at that time. But all of those challenges were inconclusive, as I said last week. it seems as though the challenge that Peter is rising to is the challenge to make certain his readers know who it is that's writing. His person and his personal relationship with the Lord. Simon Peter, there are 19 instances of him being called that in the New Testament, uh, all of them except this one here are in the Gospels. <clears throat> Two of them are in uh, Matthew and Luke. The first one in Matthew when Jesus asked Simon Peter, who do you say that I am? You remember his response. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Matthew 16, 16. In Luke's record of Simon Peter being called Simon Peter, it was in that exchange when uh, the disciples had been fishing out on the Sea of Galilee, and they had fished all night and hadn't caught anything, and you know they were following Jesus. He was their master, their teacher, and uh, Jesus approached the boat, and he yelled out to them, hey, 
cast your nets on the other side and you will catch. You recall Peter's response, you know, um, it's as though he was thinking, well, look, you're, you're our uh, teacher, you're our guide, but I'm not sure you know much about fishing. He says, Master, we've toiled all night long and we've caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, we will do it. And so at Jesus' word, they cast the net to the other side. The catch was amazing. They had to bring other disciples in to bring the fish into the boat. And as they approached the shore and he got closer to his master, he said, depart from me for I am a sinful man. The rest of the references are in John's gospel. Many are there. He's referred to in John's gospel as Andrew's brother. It was his response to Jesus in John 6, 68, when he said, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of life. In John 13, 6, when Jesus was going to wash the disciples' feet, you remember Peter's response? Lord, not just my feet. Wash my whole body. Wash all that I am. But there's one specifically interesting um, reference to him as Simon Peter in John 21, 15. <clears throat> and it is a record, uh, the Apostle John writes, of when they were, the disciples were on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had been crucified, buried, resurrected. And he had been seen by many uh, over 500 over a period of 40 days, but Peter was still frustrated that this Jesus that he was following wasn't coming in and, and taking over. You may recall that in that lapse of his faith, he told the other disciples, I'm going fishing. You know, it's, it's as though I've had enough of this. We're going to be saved from all the things around us. I'm going back to what I knew before this three years took place. And it was there on that shore that Peter saw Jesus on, on the shore and he, he knew it was the Lord. And as he comes to him, remember those three questions. Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? In his last response, the word love is always agape love, but many of the commentators and myself agree <clears throat> that in that last question to Peter, do you love me more than these, that his hands may have been pointing to the other disciples. Peter, do you love me more than all of the people that surround you? Do you love me more than all of the relationships that you have in your life? Some of my younger grandchildren and I have a favorite kind of language we say to one another if we're 
saying goodbye, you know, there's a hug and we'll say, I love you. And then the grandchild will respond, I love you more. And then it's my turn to say, I love you most. And if, if it starts differently, then the, the grandchild ends up saying, I love you most. And what Jesus was saying to Peter on that shoreline and in that moment was, Peter, do you love me most? And so he begins this letter remembering. I, I sincerely believe that he's reflecting back to who he was before Christ. He was Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon the son of Jonah. And yet as he remembers Jesus calling him to deeper waters and saying, do you love me most? He begins this letter as if to respond to that same call and that same question some Almost 30 years later, having walked with the Lord, do you love me enough to remind my children that the best antidote for heresy is mature, mature knowledge of me and to warn them against false teachings and false teachers? Do you love me enough, Peter, to make sure that they have a mature understanding of who I am and that they can recognize false teaching and teachers when they hear it. It is interesting that 2 Peter and 2 Timothy both have a unique thing in common, the two books. Paul, of course, in 2 Timothy is writing to Timothy, Peter here to others, but both of the men in the period of that writing, were awaiting martyrdom. They knew they were going to die because of their faith in Christ. They were convinced that these things that they are penning could be the very last words. And what we know is that Peter's commitment to his witness for Christ had wound him up with a sentence of death upon his life In the 14th verse of this same chapter, he reaffirms that to the reader when he says, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. He knew it. And the question might come as we read verse 14, you can look down there, uh, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed. When did he show him? Uh, certainly at that last supper, John 21, 18, Jesus said to Peter, most assuredly I say to you that when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And John makes sure that we understand this he spoke signifying by what death Peter would glorify God. He knew it. And I wonder if you and I this morning, if you were sitting here, you were sitting in your living room or whatever, and you knew that death was imminent within a short amount of time. 
How would we, how would we navigate each day? And so Peter, again, reflecting on, on who he was before Christ and who he is now because of Christ. And I believe it's always good, I was just talking with someone this morning, it's always good for us to occasionally take some spiritual inventory. Is Christ in me working something out? Or have I just said I'll depend on my eternal security and that doesn't necessarily you know, guide or direct how I live my life today. It's good to occasionally take some spiritual inventory who you were before you committed your life to Christ, who you are now that you have committed your life to Christ. Which brings us to Peter's next word, Simon Peter. He says that he is a bondservant. It's interesting that he places bondservant in front of the word apostle, whereas in 1 Peter, he says Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here he says Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, he clearly established his apostleship um, in his first letter, as well as if you've read through the book of Acts at all, uh, you know that Luke, writing the book of Acts, declares with great clarity Peter's ministry and Peter's apostleship. And so throughout uh, Luke's account in the book of Acts, throughout uh, his Letter, his first letter as an apostle, the word meaning one who is sent, he clearly addresses that role, if you will. But here in 2 Peter, it becomes clear that his standing with the Lord, listen, and if you're taking note, his standing with the Lord is much more important than his status with the Lord. And it's always important if you do any kind of Bible study, Bible reading, um, when you come across a word that you, you may think you know what it means, but where did uh, it originate from and, and what does the word really mean? And so I'm so glad you asked that question this morning. Where did the word bond servant originate from? There are 26 references to it in the New Testament, but its origin. Its origin goes all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. And I want you to turn there with me. You can keep your hand or finger in 2 Peter. Turn backwards to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 15. We don't always do a lot of turning on our Sunday mornings, but uh, this is of great importance. Deuteronomy chapter 15. As we... Uh, seek to discover the origin of the term bondservant that Peter uses for himself in his second letter. I draw your attention to uh, a law that God had given Moses to speak to the children of Israel. In verse 1 of chapter 15, notice what it says. It says, 
At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. Boy, don't we want to reenact that law. And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother because it is called the Lord's release. Now, before you run out of here and get on your phone and call your banker and say, hey, the Bible says to let me off this debt, uh, that was then, that's not now, in the material and the physical world. But you'll see in just a moment how important that is. In verse 3, Moses went on to declare, of a foreigner you may require it, but you shall give up your claim to what is owed by your brother. So a complete release. Now, if you can with me try to grasp an agrarian society in the Middle East where they have very little. I mean, we're here in the West, we have much. But particularly back, you know, thousands of years, and they have very little. And so at times when one family had uh, some livestock and another family did not, and there was the desire to purchase ground or, or build a home or whatever, a, a Hebrew neighbor would go to his neighbor and say, hey, can you lend me? Uh, an animal or some grain or whatever so that I can facilitate moving my family forward. And so that neighbor would say, yes, I will lend it to you. And it was that recipient's responsibility to pay back the debt within seven years. But if they didn't, at the end of those seven years, they were to, the recipient was to be released of all debt. Now draw your eyes down to verse 7. Which, say, which says, If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of your gates in your uh, land, which the Lord God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open uh, your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs, and beware, lest there be a wicked thought in your heart, quote, the seventh year, the year of release is at hand, and your eye uh, be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry out to the Lord against you, and it become sin among you. And so there would be these, you know, various uh, Hebrews, that if it was year six or year seven, and someone would say, come and say, will you lend me? He said, well, no, I'm not going to lend you because I'm, I'm just going to have it release you of the debt. No, I won't do it. And the Lord says, be careful. Watch your heart. But I really want to draw your attention now to these next few verses in verse, six, uh, verse 12 and verse 16. Look at verse 12. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, 
then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And as I said, in that lending and giving process, um, they were responsible to pay back what they had borrowed within seven years. But if they didn't, they were released after seven. But it was responsible for them to serve this lender for seven years. And that service would be full on. Oftentimes they would live in their home, uh, work their land, uh, care for their children, care for their livestock. That service was full on so that what he or she was borrowing, there was payment for it. But notice in verse 16, now here we get to the point of this, and if it happens that he says to you, I will not go away from you because he loves you and your house and since he prospers with you. That's a powerful verse. A servant who had nothing, who seeks to borrow something so that they can begin their life and and. They said, yes, okay, I'll loan it to you, and it'll be this, this, and this. But before you take it and go away, you've got to serve me seven years. And so that uh, recipient goes and serves for seven years. And while he's in that home, while he's with those people, while he's taking care of livestock and children and, and fixing a fence and doing whatever it takes to serve that master, he figures out that he's in love with them. He loves how they care for him. He, he loves them more than what it was he thought he was going to do in life previously. He loves them. He loves their house. And he recognizes that he prospers with them. Now hold on to those three very important things. Because we read in verse 17... And perhaps this is not new for some of you, but for some of you it may be very new. Verse 17, Then you shall take an awl and thrust it through his ear to the door. In other words, this is where original ear piercing came in. This is the biblical and... Old Testament example of piercing the ear. It's like, here's the servant said, no, I don't want to leave. I, I love you. I love being in your house. I, I prosper when I'm with you. I don't want to leave. All right, come here, kid. You know, he grabs his ear, being a little tongue-in-cheek there, but in reality, takes his ear, goes outside or inside to the doorpost, puts his ear against the and takes an awl and goes, wham, right through there. A little different than when you go into an ear piercing shop today, right? And I don't know what they use for hygiene or cleaning or whatever, but there's now a hole in the ear, and that servant would wear a ring in their ear to define themselves as a bond servant. A willing servant for Life. Notice how the verse finishes. You will take an awl, thrust it through his ear, 
uh, to the door, and he shall be your servant forever. Also your female servant, you shall do likewise. And he goes on in verse 18, that it shall not seem hard to you to send him away uh, free from you, for he has been worth double. In other words, if they choose to go away, don't, don't feel that, make that hard. But if they choose to stay, then this is what you do. And they become a bond servant to that master forever. That's the origin of the word. And so what is Peter saying when he says a bondservant? He's saying, Jesus, you took an all and you pierced my life. And everything that I've experienced in life before, I know this. I know that I love you most. I love your house most, meaning I love your people. <clears throat> Are we not the temple of the Lord, the dwelling place of the Most High? Peter is saying, I love you most. You've pierced my life. I love your people, and I prosper spiritually with you eternally. This is life-changing. It's changed my life. I am your willing servant by choice forever. Make sense? And you see, so the question that we can ask in the privacy of our hearts this morning is are you a bond servant of Jesus Christ? It's one of those questions that each one of us really answers somewhat privately. But the Lord knows the answer of the heart immediately. So he says he is a, a Simon Peter, a bondservant and an apostle. We explain that one who is sent of Jesus Christ. And then we get to who he is writing to. Still in verse 1, notice he says, uh, back to first, uh, Second Peter, I'm sorry, turn back there. Verse 1, uh, he writes, To those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, Peter is saying, I'm writing to those who have uh, the same salvation uh, I have had that they've experienced salvation in the same way that I have, that they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are saved and that that salvation didn't come by human effort. It didn't come because they're a, a moral person. It didn't come because they're conservative in nature. It didn't come because they you know, do all the right things the right way all the time. It, the, it comes, that like precious faith comes by the righteousness of Jesus Christ and faith in him. And it is interesting, you know, when we uh, look at the life of Peter in the Gospels, it's uh, pretty eye-opening. 
if you've studied his life at all, we see him talking when he should be listening, Matthew 16, sleeping when he should be praying, Mark 14, stepping out when he should have held back, John 18, and holding back when he should have stepped out in John 13. And perhaps you can see, and I can see, I know I can, see a little bit of Peter in yourself. That, Lord, I just, there are times when I think I get it right and don't get it right, and, and how's, how's that all going to flesh out and pan out when my last breath comes? And the good news is that Jesus prayed for Peter. Peter made it through. You've heard it when you enter the pearly gates and Peter is standing there. He will really be there. Why did he make it through? With so many, you know, natural kind of marks on his person. Why? Why, you know, Jesus prayed for him. Do you remember that? Luke twenty-two thirty-two. Jesus said, but I have prayed for you. And the Bible teaches us that even now, Jesus Christ is interceding for you and I. That there may be times when we step out and we should hold back. That there may be times when we hold back but should step out. That there may be times that we should be praying but we're sleeping. Times that we should be listening but we're talking. And Jesus says, I'm interceding for you right now, and you're going to make it through. Why? Because he is faithful. Hebrews 7 tells us not that we are faithful, but he is faithful. And Peter is reminding his reading audience that this uh, faith, this like precious faith, is indeed precious. A couple of things that remind us of why it is precious. First, it's precious because it deals with the precious promises of God. Our like faith, our precious like faith, is the window through which the promises of God become our possession. And when we get back into the book in a couple of weeks and we get into verse 3, he talks about uh, these precious promises. The faith is precious because it deals with precious promises. It deals with the precious blood. This morning we get the opportunity again to uh, engage in uh, one of the only two sacraments that Jesus left us. The first being baptism, water baptism, full immersion into the water as a declaration publicly of one's inner faith in Christ Jesus as the only Son of God. If you've never been baptized and you consider yourself a Christian, hey, let me tell you something. The Bible says find some water and and get baptized. And the second sacrament that he's left us is communion, which is a remembrance of his blood being shed as the propitiation for our sin. Precious faith, it deals with the precious promises, precious blood, precious redemption. Uh, 
bought back. Remember years ago when you used to take a Coke bottle into the store and get five cents back? That was the redemption, right? California redemption cost. Well, somebody had to pay the price for the sin that separates mankind from a holy God. And Jesus Christ paid that price in full. As we've talked so many times here that Christ demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Can you say amen? I mean, thank you, Lord. Precious redemption and a precious person of Christ himself. Who he is, who he is, is precious. So he's writing to those who have obtained a like precious faith by the righteousness of God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now he uh, says to them what he desires for them and of them in uh, verse 2. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, why is that verse important as well? I mean, we're taking a little bit of time this morning on these two verses, but I believe them to be important. I believe them to be timely, maybe for one or some of us here this morning as it relates to the truth about being his bond servant. But as we come to this second verse, the importance here is, is that the grace of God and the peace of God are are. Two sisters, they're linked in a chain. And the fact of the matter is, is that I can never know the peace of God. Have you ever been in turmoil and had so much going on in your life? Oh God, I just want your peace. Just bring me your peace. And the Lord is peace. Jesus said, I am your peace. But the link to that chain is his grace. Knowing his grace knowing that by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man's boast. That grace cherished the unmerited favor of God, who, that he decided to just bestow on each and every one that would say, yes, I believe I'm reading this thing called the Bible and it tells me that, that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God and that he died to save me from the penalty of my sin and offer me eternity with God and a life more abundantly. I believe it. And God says, grace. And so to know his peace is to walk in his grace. To walk in his peace is to know his grace. And notice what Peter somewhat defines as the way in which this grace and this peace can be multiplied. I mean, many, I mean, just think of the multiplication process. I mean, I'm not a math person, but every time I do my, it's the first of the month, right? Do my bills and I'm, you know, Oftentimes it's minus this, minus that, minus the other. But when I get uh, uh, credits, 
then I'm putting them in and multiplying those credits of what they are together. And so Peter is saying, the way God's grace and the way God's peace, listen, is multiplied in your life, Peter is saying to his reader, how? In the knowledge, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now that's, Peter says, by divine prompting that that's how the grace of God and the peace of God is multiplied in the believer's life, is in the knowledge of. Now before we become too clinical in that, because it's, it's not, can I recite three verses? Um, do I know how many times the word Jesus is in the New Testament? That kind of thing, no. Actually, I, I think an understanding about that word knowledge is more greatly defined as we turn to a lexicon, uh, a Bible dictionary of some sort. And the word there, I'll try and not butcher it too much, is uh, epigonosco. And it means this. An exact, full, discernment and recognition. An exact, full discernment and recognition of God and of Jesus our Lord. So the question then comes, what am I doing to know exactly Christ? To know him? What's that old cliche, to know him is to love him? When the disciples asked, you know, show us the Father, and Jesus said, I've been with you so long. Why do I need to show you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And how will you and I see Jesus? It's right here. We will see him through his word. And as we see him, we get to know him exactly. And as we get to know him exactly, our, the fullness of what we know of him begins to enlarge. And with that fullness and ex that exact knowledge, a discernment begins to to enter the spiritual man where you're able to discern uh, what Jesus would want in the moment, what Jesus would do in a given day, what Jesus would ask of, of me in my speech or my thought process or, or my inclinations. God forbid that we would just, you know, take this tremendous sacrifice on the cross and then say, thanks, buddy, I'm going to go live my life my way. How sacrilegious when he says, I want you to know me in the fullness of who I am. I want you to know exactly who I am to you and discern in your life daily what I would have you to be and what I would have you to do because you recognize, you recognize me and who I am. 
I just think that's like, what a powerful way to start a letter by emphasizing these two things. His life as a bondservant, willing slave, by choice, forever, not going anywhere, because he loves Jesus most. And... engaging for the rest of life to know him exactly, fully, discerningly, and recognizably. I think it's a powerful way to start a letter. And I'm looking forward to when we jump in in a couple of weeks to to start unpacking the rest of, of this letter that that was written from a guy who knows, you know what, I'm dying. I'm gonna die. What would you say? What letter would you write if you knew your death was coming soon? And this is the, the tone, the mode by which this beautiful second letter comes to us in, in that he wants, to, he wants Peter to uh, warn of false teachers and t- false teaching and to make sure that his reading audience knows that the, the best antidote for heresy is a mature, a mature knowledge of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And boy, don't we need that today. There's so much confusion out there at times in the quote-unquote Christian world. There's so much heresy that can be had just by hitting the button and flipping through the 300 channels that is there. And the only way you and I are going to be able to stand and not be swayed by any of that is by being mature, a mature knowledge of the truth, and by a recognition of heresy when we hear it. So that's why he, that's why Peter writes it, and he reminds us, of the preciousness of this faith. Here's a very precious thing. I hope it's precious to you. I hope it's as precious to you as it is to Peter. And that this morning, as we take these elements, the the cracker and the cup, and we do something that we we do often, once every first of the month here, but it doesn't have to be limited to that. You uh, can do this in your home. You can... Sanctify your house that way, and I would encourage that to, at times, just take communion amongst you, you as husband and wife, your family, your children, whatever. Just say, you know what, we're going to sanctify a few moments here. Remember what Christ has done for us. What a beautiful thing to do in the home. It began in the home. but We've moved it into the sanctuary, and this morning we get to remember. I hope it's as precious to you as it is to Peter. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Men, will you come forward to begin to distribute the elements? Let's take a moment and we'll we'll pray. Appreciate these men so much. Each one of them is so special. If you don't know them, you should get to know them.
are great guys. Let's thank the Lord, shall we? Father, we do thank you for the preciousness of your son, Jesus. The preciousness of your promises to us. The preciousness of your blood and your body that was shed for us. As we take these elements in our hand and are reminded of who you are, that we can take some spiritual inventory, Lord, remembering who we were before you invaded the private place of our heart. And we welcomed you and committed our life to you. And now looking at who we are becoming because of who you are in our lives. It's a lifelong process. We're never done until we're done. And for that we will thank you. But this morning receive our praise and our worship. In Jesus' name.